1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Studying Media Critically, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gomo Claire, and today I'm joined by Onomik Saha, who's a senior lecturer in the Department of Media, Communications and Cultural Studies at Goldsmiths University of London. We'll be talking about his excellent new book, Race, Culture and Media, which was published in 2021. Welcome to the show, Onomik. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, I guess, can we start off with a bit of uh, biographical background? Could you tell us a little bit about your um, academic and kind of professional path into scholarship?
0: I'm assuming quickly, <laughs> brief, brief. brief. Um, I did, I, I grew up in northeast London, not far from where I am now. And um, I studied media and communication at goldsmiths actually where i work now as an undergrad and i picked that course because i thought i was going to be really interested of my interest and they you know they were genuinely i wanted to make stuff on it i was interested in making film tv shows kind of being creative um but um the nature of the course was that half of it is spent teaching practice um but the other half was teaching theory and at the time i didn't realize this but, but at the time I was being taught by, you know, short of Stuart Hall, like the founding figures of British cultural studies. Um, again, I, it's not something I really, um, uh, and like, you know, kind of when I applied, I had no idea. I honestly, I don't think I knew what cultural studies was. And then all of a sudden I was kind of attending classes by these brilliant people, taught by these brilliant people that were referring to other, you know, the work of other, you know, influential kind of figures in that tradition and i was like oh god i can i can write essays on this stuff so my a bit by this is quite personal but my dissertation my undergraduate dissertation was called asians can't rock and basically it was about um british south asians who play in guitar bands especially in the genre of like indie rock and punk which are you know um, very, very white genres, historically white genres, and you know, I was a fan of this music, and I was playing in bands in this scene, and so I was given the opportunity. You know, cultural studies and te- learning and, and, and being a student at Goldsborough gave me the opportunity to to actually think about and explore some of the issues I felt being in that scene. You know, kind of, am I? you know, really crude questions like, am I, you know, I get I get kind of teased by my Asian mates for being into this kind of music. You know, am I just assimilating into white culture? But at the same time, when I go to these gigs and play in these bands, I'm often the only person of colour. And that's a weird experience. I don't know why. No, I'm not experiencing explicit racism, but it doesn't, you know, I don't really feel a part of it like some of my mates do. Um, and also why is this, you know, how have other, asians in a similar position kind of you know performed and what has been the politics and aesthetics of the of their music and how you know and through that i learned about how culture is the and media is the sphere where you know dominant ideas around race as well as gender sexuality class and so on get reproduced but also for space where we can challenge them which ties in nicely to this book which is kind of you know explores all of those issues in a much grander scale you know back then I was very interested in British South Asian experience especially those people who work in the media that became my PhD project looking at other British South Asians and their experiences of working in media and I wasn't just interested in and again this kind of goes back to like my um my punk DIY roots I wasn't just interested in the representations of, of stories and characters they were creating in their narratives but I was also really interested in how they were getting their stories out there. Um, you know, what kind of modes of production were they using? You know, it's what, what relationship, you know, often in different settings, whether that was like public service broadcasting, whether that was in a corporate setting or whether it was in a really kind of DOI, independent underground kind of sense as well, which, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not, I wasn't naive enough to say that that existed outside of capitalism, but, it, you know, at times those modes of production can be explicitly, if not anti-capitalist, certainly anti-commercial and anti-corporate. So, so that's how all my kind of interests um, kind of coalesce. And then from the PhD, I kind of yeah developed this interest in cultural industries and and media industries. So how co- how how media works, um, and then yeah, and that's something that I've followed. That's followed through um, throughout my work. And as I say, you know, race, culture, and media. This this latest book is an opportunity to really. Kind of pull all of those different strands together from like production, politics, representation, but also, you know, consumption and audiences, which is something I hadn't really researched. But at the moment, the influence of the audience is really, is really kind of, um, I won't say radically altering, but it's having a, an impact on production in a way that I don't think has really happened in the history of modern media. And that I think that is thanks to social media, which is I'm sure something we'll talk about shortly. So, yeah, that's kind of a little brief rundown of where I
1: got to where I am now. And the book has a – because because it builds on, you know, your previous book, uh, Race and the Cultural Industries, but this one, as you say, expands the, uh, I guess, areas of, of media, so to include consumption and audiences a bit more, but also has a, a textbook format. So could you tell us a bit about, like, any specific challenges or interesting experiences in writing in this kind of mode – yeah, yeah. I was I was invited by the good people
0: at Sage to write this book. Actually while I was finishing off Race in the Culture Industry, so it felt so it's been it's been in the pipeline for a while now. And um and hey look, let you know, let's be let's be um kind of let's be upfront about this. There's you know, textbooks have a particular standing, don't they? And I'm sorry to say, and I think I've probably been guilty of this uh, of the part in the past you know there's a snobbishness towards these books which are you know designed to be accessible designed specifically for learning and teaching right and so um so they're not really seen as creating new knowledge as such or driving new arguments rather they you know they're often a synthesis they're designed to be a synthesis of all the literature in the field and and you know I think the the most the, the kind of most successful textbooks in that regard are the ones that you know can really speak to student needs directly, um, including kind of relevant case studies and so on. Often they have kind of little um, like little details, like you know, a kind of a box where you can kind of highlight a specific theory or thinker, or like you know, discussion points at the end of each chapter, which can then feed a seminar discussion. So, for um, for instance, so. Um, so yeah, so obviously these are really valuable and, (laughs) and, you know, they can, they can sell quite well as well. (laughs) That's not the reason I wrote it, obviously, (laughs) but you know, they are mass produced, right? Um, relatively mass produced. Um, but I kind of, I was thinking about some of my, um, favorite textbooks, um, and I kind of realized how they meant more to me in terms of how I kept on referring back to them. They would introduce me to a field, but also they, I mean, I actually kind of my, my favorite ones were actually built around arguments and were producing new knowledge. Um, I always, you know, I really respect the work in the, in the field of like critical race kind of studies broadly conceived. I really respect the work of people like John Solomos and Les Back who write about, you know, kind of really important, edited, really either written or edited, really important kind of textbooky um, type books um, that that cover, you know, provide really brilliant, insightful overviews of really complex theories. Um, more in the cultural industries, vein, the book Culture Industries by David Hesman, was a huge influence. And, you know, that is a book that's referred to by everyone in the field, whether students or kind of, you know, the, the biggest research names or whatever in the, the key figures in the field. I also really liked Aaron, my colleague Aaron Davis, as I was writing this book, his book Promotional Culture came out and that was another book I tried to emulate. And and so what, so it's a textbook and what I really love about it, and this is like my whole um, ethos around writing is to try and make things as accessible as possible as I say to my students you know who try and write academically in inverted commas you know you're already if you're already dealing with really complex theories and ideas and concepts so our task as you know scholars for want of a better word is to try and communicate those complex theories and and, and ideas in the most you know accessible way without and, and you you can't really do that By dumbing down, but we can definitely do it through our language and trying to write it with clarity um, and and precision. So that that was always my ethos in everything I write. I like to think that my work isn't actually that difficult to read, Um, and so that that carried through into this textbook. And I really enjoyed writing in that mode even more. You know, writing in that mode, thinking of students and researchers. Um, but then also what I learned from the, the textbooks that had influenced me and had shaped my 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 research my work was you know I wanted I wanted it to be based around an argument you know I wanted to try and bring together different perspectives that haven't maybe gone together um, as neatly in the past but to try it out and, and and to build an argument around race culture and media um and so I think, I think I did actually speak to David Hesman Houch about this, about cultural industries. And he, he described it as a research led textbook, a research led textbook. And I think that's, yeah. So yeah, I kind of, I mean, God, if I can inspire, God, I don't want to sound so grand, but if this book can inspire, you know, other people that this is actually a format that can really do interesting things, um, before I labour this point even more, but you know, writing kind of writing those case studies and coming up with discussion points actually was a really really useful exercise. It really kind of showed the issues at stake in a way that maybe a, a traditional research book doesn't. You know, sometimes we can get a little bit. Uh, you know we can go down a rabbit hole, can't we? And sometimes the clarity isn't always there. Why we started writing this book in the first place is, it's, you know, sometimes it's not always that clear. Um, so, so yeah. So I, I, I actually really enjoyed writing in this mode, even though I had some misgivings about it when I started.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it has a really impressive scope and clarity without sacrificing depth, given quite how much you have to cover and have to engage with. So no, I think that's definitely the case. So moving on to the kind of new knowledge bit, I guess. The book's topped and tailed with you laying out a theoretical framework which kind of synthesizes aspects of the critical political economy approach to media, post-colonial studies and cultural studies. And you call this the post-colonial cultural economy. So could you lay out what this means in practice? Yeah, so it's basically,
0: so this notion of post-colonial culture economy is to basically trying to capture like the dimensions the different dimensions at the micro meso and micro level that shape how as i put put it in in this book how media make race so that's the kind of question how media make race um and that's a kind of a slight shift from how media represents race which is often the kind of question a lot of us work with you know t- thinking about how particular you know racial and ethnic groups uh are represented by media and the extent to which this is accurate or authentic or correct you know and all of those words i put in inverted in scare quotes because they're highly contested right um and so how media make race i feel like captures better what what is happening in the realm of race culture this is what media does it makes it it makes ideas of race that we then that then shape society's you know understandings of different racial and ethnic others so you know this is a very you know spoiler alert gummer there's there's a few references to Stuart hall (laughs) in this book it's hard not to um but like i say post-colonial cultural economy is a way it kind of you know in a way builds on the famous circuit of culture you know Production, representation, identity. I wish I didn't start this because now I'm going to forget where the others are. Policy, <laughs> identity. I think I've maybe repeat myself. Anywho, it's a bit of a bit of an extension of that, but it's thinking more about different layers. So the macro, the meso, and the micro levels. So so the macro would include, you know, thinking about how legacies of empire still play a huge role in terms of how we understand race, race as an idea, race as a concept, which then materializes into the experiences of those who have been racialized. Also, you can't, you know, you're talking about the media. You've got to look at the political economy of media, right? And who who owns it, you know, kind of issues of concentration, media concentration and conglomeration. Um, the extent to which that inevitably reduces diversity or not, actually, is the case. Um, you know and then of course now with social media the way that global tech companies are are you know the huge players now in the media landscape and and um and a monetizing content that we make for free essentially so those are the kind of macro dimensions and already i'm touching on cultural studies i'm touching on post-colonial studies but also critical political economy you know and there was a time where you know never the twain should meet you know <laughs> Jeez. um In that, you know, there was there was this very in the in the eighties and nineties, there was this crude uh, opposition created between cultural studies and political economy approaches. So immediately, I'm going to do away with that. I'm not. I mean, thankfully, that the debate doesn't really happen on those terms anymore. But there's still, I think, we you know more can be done in bridging those different um, uh, uh, approaches together in order to better understand how capitalism and racism are working together in order to shape media making practices at the meso level we're looking at organisations so who are the people making media you know um, so you know whether that's film studios um, major record labels and publishing houses through to you know independent producers whether you know I'm um, really interested in like the new forms of like um, black and brown, even in, in the context of Britain, you know, the, the the new kind of platforms run by young black, brown, Asian people, um, especially journalists who are kind of becoming the new, you know, emerging as a new generation of cultural critics and creating their own platforms and creating content for their own communities, um, communities that have historically been marginalized. I mean, at the micro level, it's about, yeah, like looking at the everyday experiences of media, including questions of consumption um, and um, and 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 the politics of that and you know it's one of the you know the crude the one of the kind of critique if I can go back to that political economy versus cultural cultural studies debate um, you know one of the, the one of the kind of I think one of the most reductive arguments made against cultural studies and especially audience studies was that they were suggesting that audiences hold all the power but that was never their intention audience studies scholars were never saying that they held all the power, but nonetheless they were pointing to the ways in which consumption is highly complex and that actually by looking at the complexity of consumption, of how we consume media, it also develops a really much more nuanced understanding of the operations of ideology um, and how ideology works. So so that's what the postcolonial cultural economy is trying to do is to actually think about all of those different levels as well as the different areas production representation and consumption um so yeah trying to produce a net a a, a framework which as you kind of highlight draws from critical political economy cultural studies post-colonial studies um and so on so yeah that was that's what i attempted to do and yeah and the first half of the book kind of outlines those that different approach those different approaches
1: yeah and and so the front half is really well laid out talking about how you are getting them to speak to each other and then you're kind of pointing out some of the shortcomings of each different approach. One that interested me, I think, in Chapter 2 was you talk about some of the limitations or absences in the critical cultural approach to race regarding affect, emotion and feeling. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about what like attending to those features adds to any kind of analysis of race in the media. Hmm. If
0: anything, actually, I feel like I could have developed some of those ideas more. I think there's some really interesting... Um, research being done on that and more research needs to be done actually um particularly in regard to kind of media practices um amongst like racial racialized communities you know there's one of it one of the kind of that big one of the big kind of arguments i wanted to sorry let me start again one of the big tendencies that i wanted to kind of critique straight away is something that i see a lot especially on social media um and and it, and i think it's really Problematic, but there's a tendency to kind of, the politics representation as it unfolds on social media, and Gavin, Gavin Titley writes really brilliantly on this, is that um, they often take really reductive terms in terms of whether this representation of black character is correct or not, or authentic or not, or stereotypical or biased, you know, and the big part of the book is kind of dispelling those terms that we often use to frame our discussions and representation. One of the other problems of, as well of just this focus on representation, which is basically, you know, the, the, the primary way in which kind of race and media has been explored through the politics of representation, as Stuart Hall calls it, is that, it, yeah, sometimes it can have a straight, it can be based upon too straightforward account of ideology. So this particular representation, you know, reproduces Orientalist ideologies or discourse, whatever you want to work with, of, you know, let's say, you know, kind of Middle Eastern people or Muslim people. And sometimes that doesn't do justice to the ways in which we take meaning and pleasure and uh, from from media that for media we consume and also how actually that can galvanize us and empower us in ways that are not as tangible so it's not like I watch a superhero movie featuring in you know, a South Asian man as the you know the lead superhero, and all of a sudden I feel empowered <laughs> to, you know as a South Asian cis man um. I don't think media really works like that. And how often do we watch stuff that is really bad, and we know that it's problematic, but we can still get something from it? It's not, and that, and and that's yeah, that's about pleasure, right? And that's about pleasure and how we get how pleasure is produced. But also, it's about how those, like the the effect of particular media texts can 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 produce forms of like you know collective flourishing you know and music's a really good example of that like music with it in especially in its most non-semiotic forms like dance music for instance where the lyrics are you know literally i love you baby repeated over and over again but nonetheless in a particular context listening to that music can really be have powerful effects right um in terms of uh, in terms of the kind of forms of solidarity engenders in that particular space, you know, whether it's a dance floor or even like, you know, watching a movie together or or, or creating creating content together. You know, these the emotions, affects, and pleasure, you know, they're really important parts of it, which go beyond the question of representation often and what's being represented. And, and so I think that's something that is neglected. To be fair, I don't think the book probably develops that as much as it could have done, maybe, you know, maybe I can point to the dearth of research on that, but maybe that's actually my own shortcomings and something I'd need to kind of think about um, some more, but yeah, those are definitely underrated. And what it does is it kind of gets us out of that cul-de-sac of like, is this representation right or not? You know, which I think, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's frustrating to see those reductive reductive ways in which we tend to talk about media, especially in relation to race and cultural politics. And that's what this book is trying to shift, actually.
1: Yeah. And I, it's actually something I realized just reading the conclusion where you mentioned that you've avoided any framing or even any engagement really with the notion of cultural appropriation. And I only realized then how refreshing it was not to have read anything about that in the rest of the book. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, you're dealing with representation elsewhere, but you realise exactly how reductive and how kind of a, a much of a cul de sac that kind of circumscribed understanding of representation can be um so yeah that's one kind of quite refreshing part of the book
0: yeah and um i you know it's that's uh, you know to go back to the original question about you know what a textbook can can do um and 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 that is i think an example of where you know that's what excited me actually i can kind of cite kind of not, I don't want to sound like an egomaniac, <laughs> but there's not many There haven't been, there hasn't been a textbook on race kind of culture media, this kind of approach, you know, for a long time. And so the ability to kind of maybe take a stab of like trying to steer that the ways in which this stuff is discussed based on my own, you know, this isn't just, this isn't my own agenda. This is based on, you know, a very long period of research and, you know, and I've challenged a lot of my own assumptions. I mean, the cultural appropriation argument, I mean, it's a fascinating one In in some ways I've, and it's, you know, the ones that often generate the most discussion in class. And in, in some ways, maybe I did it, you know, maybe I was a little bit too dismissive actually. Um, but it's, you know, I'm just, I was just trying to, yeah, shift the ways in which maybe we talk and explore, these issues and i don't want to do give too much justice to approaches, or too much space to approaches that i think are actually part of the problem and why it, and, and limits our understandings of how race and culture works for those who haven't read it i'm not suggesting you know my, my my kind of slight i won't say dismissal but my knees around the cultural appropriation argument is that as much as we need to take very very seriously the exploitation of culture and racialize others in the form of commodity culture by dominant by the dominant culture by powerful groups um as much as we need to take that very very seriously when it's st- the problem with the cultural appropriation argument is that it turns into a question of ownership right this is and private property right this is ours you're not allowed to use it and that is not how culture works you know fundamentally that is not how culture works so what i'm trying to do is think get us to develop a much more nuanced understanding of, you know, the nature of our exploitation without without which doesn't slip into, you know, kind of problematic notions of authenticity or, as I say, ownership. You know, the culture that we hold dear and that we kind of really, we stake so much on that we feel really does belong to our particular, let's just say, community for now. Um, Often those things are hybrid, mixed, mash mash up of all kinds of influences internal and external as well as internal you know and so as i say that's not how culture works so so yeah um so what i try and do with the book is yeah try and uh, produce a more nuanced way to explore that exploitation of culture which is a fact of cultural production especially in the west
1: Your your mention of ownership there actually leads us on to your engagement with racial capitalism. And I thought maybe the best way into that would be the question that you raise in chapter four, which is, is media in the West more interested in extracting profit or sustaining racial hierarchies? Um, Last year I read, and this was something I noticed myself and then,
0: um gal them inevitably you know were already on it you know and um they wrote this brilliant uh, I can't remember no apologies i can't remember the person who wrote it but it was about post black lives matter it was about the kind of surge of like anti-racist non-fiction that was being pushed by publishers some of it was commissioned immediately after black lives matter but a lot of it was pushed immediately in black lives matter black lives matter's wake Um, There was this big push and there was this famous moment like this one week where like, you know, the majority of the top 10 bestsellers were black authors or at least books on racism. Um, And that would, you know, and, 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 you know, the publishing industry, which I've written about a lot, done a lot of research on the publishing industry, which is, I always think of um, Greg Dyke, the former director general of the BBC, when he described his own organization as hideously white, you know, he's at a Christmas party with all the managers and he (laughs) he sees just a sea of whiteness and the publishing industry has that that same problem and despite their best efforts it's not changing and so you've got this very you know research shows the whitest if i can put it in these crude terms the whitest culture industry more than any others pushing out all these books on anti race let's call it anti-racist non-fiction Um, you can probably think of examples I'm thinking of and they and yeah and that would suggest and and, you know to what extent are those books I mean these are very publishers like to think of themselves as a very liberal bunch but it does kind of start you know on the one hand you can read that as really progressive it's great that finally they're taking these books seriously and and releasing them but then there's a the question of well, what's happening to these books who's buying them and where and what and how what is the level of the engagement and then the also the other question as well is like you know to what extent would the publishers been doing this if they weren't going to make a ton of money from it so all of a sudden anti-racism seems like this is an argument a notorious argument by Zizek where he says anti-racism is actually very useful to capitalism because what you're doing is that you're creating you Bringing in kind of um, audiences that were once marginalised, they who are becoming new market niches, right? Who you can target and commodify and sell products to. So it helps capitalism expand once all these marginalised groups are brought into the economy, into the market. Um, it's not as simple as that, right? So racial capitalism, which very rarely, the discussions of which are very rarely touched on media which i find really surprising because like media is a really rich site in which to explore the cultural dynamics of racial capitalism in terms of you know the the two 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 big issues if you like the two big forms of exploitation one is racism racial oppression subjugation racial violence and then there's capitalism you know the exploitation of the worker and, and so on and so forth and and what racial capitalism helps us understand is that racism and capitalism are two distinct historical forces but they're intertwined and together at different moments in history that relationship defines how racial others are treated and are made um, in different moments in history so so that was that was uh again of like a really um, I really enjoyed writing that chapter. I really enjoyed exploring racial capitalism in relation to media because it kind of explains so much about what's going on with regards to the diversity of race and especially um, commodification of race, apologies. Um, And also, you know, diversity right now, the D word, (laughs) you know, it's it's hard to escape and it is defining so much of what we consume um, right now. The diversity agenda let me put it again say it again the diversity agenda is shaping so much of what we consume right now black brown white asian people like everyone across the board um and so racial capitalism is a really and really useful theory for helping us think about what is happening there because it seems like a progressive shift isn't it great that there's more people of color you know isn't it great that there's people of color in period dramas now you know it's that wonderful thing um the whitest of the genres i'm talking i'm sorry about talking about these reductive terms i'm trying to encourage people not to talk in such reductive but you know for a period costume dramas you know historically notoriously the whitest of all the genres and now all of a sudden you know you see black brown asian people having a whale of a time you know on these shows <laughs> the characters are like all getting up getting caught up in all kinds of uh, romantic entanglements and you know <laughs> misunderstandings and you know creating drama um and and but but you know you know it's what is actually going on here? What, what What is driving this and how, Right, I think, that, you know, don't get me wrong, this it, this is so amazing compared to, you know, um, an Asian lead on Bridgerton when I was a kid growing up in the 80s in the UK, you know, never thought I'd see that. Um, so there's something, you know, enabling and constraining going on and that's, and racial, capital, racial capitalism is a really useful theory for helping us produce a critical account of what diversity is doing right now which as i say is shaping so much of the media we consume right now we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see We could not, but she did. And in the end,
1: what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And then thinking about this, the kind of cultural commodification of of race, you you identify like two different strands, right? Top down and bottom up. And top down and bottom up reappear a couple of occasions throughout the book. So I I wonder if you could kind of expand a bit on how you're distinguishing those dynamics. Often commodification of race is often, as it's been, you know. Bell Hooks, I think,
0: is probably the most famous proponent of that argument in her essay "Eating the Other." Well, it's still, I mean, it's one of those essays I return. It's a set reading on 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 the course I teach, and I return to it. I have an opportunity to return to it every year, and I always. It's one of those essays where you always pick up something new every time you revisit it. Um, and it captures brilliantly the way the the dynamics of the commodification of the other, um, and what Bell Hooks does utilizing a black feminist perspective she highlights the sexual kind of a sexual dimensions to that you know literally eating the other i mean it's so provocative just the very notion right um and, and and in doing so she highlights the operations of what she famously calls white capitalist patriarchal society see all of the words you know capitalism white supremacy patriarchy you know all brought to bear in her analysis um so bell hooks talks about commodification of other and 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 how you know the politics any kind of radical potential of the cultural commodity is subsumed when it becomes when it takes a commodity form and she you know famously it takes the task like public enemy you know who which seems kind of a little bit perverse talking about one of the greatest rap bands of all time but she says look you know your when you your your message when you, when you become a commodity that message of like Black Power when it takes commodity form, all of its politics is subsumed, you know, and <laughs> she famously goes on to take on, you know, Beyonce later on, and then, you know, calls her a terrorist for the way in which she exploits herself and her sexuality and black sexuality in order to make surplus value or profit. But then, you know, my, my issue with that argument is that, one, it doesn't really, you know, is that really, is there a form of culture that exists outside of commodification, I guess, is, the is, you know, the, the kind of question. I'm sure there are like very you know pure the you know fleeting moments where culture is you know kind of autonom purely autonomous from capitalism but actually for the most part any kind of cultural expression that is shared on a mass level will have to take commodity form in some form and that and it, that doesn't always have to you know reproduce capitalist ideology and as we know and the, the best art and culture that we love and cherish the most often is precisely because it goes against the grain somehow. I'm not, you know, a song's never gonna take down the system, but it can definitely, you know, produce new insights, show us new kind of images of intercultural kind of exchange. It can kind of, yeah, produce forms of individual and collective flourishing. So you've got a top-down argument that I mean, that is pretty defeatist and fatalistic, that any the, the minute culture takes commodity form all of its radical potential it's subsumed right but then you've got a perspective that from the bottom up that kind of understands a how like you know culture making always involves a form of commodification they're always you know the by 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 making this podcast i mean i don't know if either of us are getting paid for it but nonetheless it's um it's you know it would end up taking commodity form in some shape right in terms of um the platforms through which its shared right um and that doesn't have to foreclose any, you know, politics. And as I say, you know, one of the tasks of the book is to kind of nuance our understanding of what cultural politics is, you know, and I work with, again, Stuart Hall, um, his notion, well, his take on Gramsci and and, and more of a position, which I think is such a really, uh, such a, still really resonates. I feel a bit embarrassed that I'm kind of speaking in, no, I mean that's no I shouldn't be embarrassed. I mean it, you know it's it's a fairly established theory, right? And maybe it's out of fashion, right? But that's what that's what I would say. Maybe it's out of fashion, but for me it still captures perfectly the cultural political potential of popular culture and what he's arguing is that what the, the cultural politics of popular culture is about shifting hegemony and you know and and it's like you know what what you can do no matter how incrementally is shift hege- hegemony through cultural production whether that's making a film a tv show a book a piece of music it has that power to shift hegemony no matter how incrementally it can do that um and and what what's good about that approach is that it takes the pressure it, it stops us from burdening a piece of art to transform society in its entirety because no no piece of art or form of culture is going to be able to do that but it can shift hegemony and the other thing he argues which is really kind of in some ways kind of depressing but actually doesn't have to be is the idea that in that in that struggle for hegemony between what he calls the dominant culture and let's say you know the subaltern or minoritized groups is that there's never going to be a winner there's never going to be an outright outright winner and so yeah that does mean that we just exist in this permanent state of trying to shift hegemony into more favorable progressive radical directions but you know If that is the model we're working with, then we can think about cultural production and cultural products, which are commodified, you know, which are cultural commodities, whether we like it or not. Um, We can then think about what they can actually do politically, which kind of goes against, runs counter to that top down argument of commodification of race, which is brilliantly articulated by... Amazing critical theorists, whether that's Bell Hooks or Theodore Adorno, you know, famously, most scathing of the commodification of culture. You know, that's why I like, you know, that's why I wanted to produce a more nuanced take of what commodification does and what it's, what, which, yes, inevitably is about exploitation, but it can have enabling properties too.
1: Yeah. And I think that you do do a good job of uh, exactly not adopting either position because I think, again, you know, it's become quite commonplace to accept the idea of kind of total commodification which can mean that any kind of progressive valence can kind of go out of the back door and you feel unable to comment on the the negative implications of commodification of culture do you know what i mean through a kind of a kind of ambient optimism or whatever else you want to call it you know and so i think retaining that at least a little bit of that bell hooks kind of angle it remains really important and that's Really apparent throughout the book. So, moving on to the case studies. Um, first, I wanted to ask you why you chose these particular ones, and if you could explain what the case studies you choose are.
0: <laughs> Let me just go to the contents page <laughs> of my book. Um, so, yeah, I. So, this was a hard. This was a hard task. I mean, one of the first things I've got. Uh, you know, the thing that I struggled the most with this book was the Anglo-centric perspective you know on the one hand we get publishers kind of <laughs> this is not a specific reference to sage um who've been very supportive throughout but generally publishers can be like well can you make it more global and often you're just thinking you know it just it just feels a bit it feel, can, can feel a bit uh, uh uh superficial and 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 you know but they but saying that and I do write about this in the book and I do reflect on this, but, you know, there's been this big push to de-Westernize, decolonize media studies. And a part of that is to kind of, you know, challenge the Eurocentricity, Anglo-centricity specifically, uh, in, or in particular, rather, of, of of media studies and media research. So I wish I could have... I, I think the book fails miserably at doing that. I think, oh, or at least, you know, I've tried to bring in more international perspectives, but actually it's it's... I don't think it really does justice to... Well, I mean, firstly, that to write a book that is truly global—I mean, that would be huge, right? You know, I mean, it would be insanely massive. You, you know, to be able to do just this to every international, regional context, you know, <laughs> I'd be writing it would be creating a monster. And and secondly, you know, one of the things we really need to understand are that ideas of race aren't universal and they have a very local, national dimension to them. So the kind of the way which race is made understood. In the UK, is very different to the way in which race is the historical, um, the history of race and race thinking in, say, South America and in India and in the Pacific region, you know, they, they, and, and they have very specific histories in each of those regions. And, yeah, they do overlap, you know. And, and, and for not least through global cultural industries, you know, kind of the kind of very American forms of blackness have become the dominant form of blackness for even for people, for black people way beyond the United States, you know. Um, so, so, yeah. So for that purpose, you know, I am working with a very kind of European take on, sorry, a very European history of race and race making. Um, and so the case studies, you know, do, I'm afraid to say, kind of come from that perspective uh and so yeah i looked at kind of i kind of thought about it in terms of actually do you know what I, I thought about it in terms of what students write about you know what what when in my experience teaching having taught these topics for well over a decade now um looking at the topics that yeah students cover so yeah migrants the media's treatments of my the media's treatment of migrants is a big big issue as is increasingly islamophobia then like the islamophobia migrants questions quite interesting because they overlap quite a lot One of the things I do in the chapter on media migration and racism is look at, yeah, the construction of the migrant. You know, firstly, the conflation of migrant, refugee, asylum seeker, but then also how the migrant is racialized um, and, you know, how kind of the word Muslim kind of stands in for the word migrant and vice versa. I think a chapter, there needed to be a dedicated chapter on Islamophobia though. um, and, And the big theme of that is on Islamophobia as a form of racism, because that's something that is debated. Is Islamophobia a form of racism? And you get perspectives from the far right who say, I'm not racist, but I just, you know, I have a problem with Islam. Islam's a, you know, a dangerous faith, for instance, but, you know, somehow that's not racist. Similarly, though, you've got people from, you know, from a critical theorist point of view who's saying, actually, we need to take Islamophobia as a very specific phenomenon. And I draw from the people who actually talk about it in terms of its racializing forms and of course media play an absolute crucial role in that and so much of the popular culture we assume um we consume you know like the other is often muslim you know throughout popular culture um so so there's a chapter on that um and then there's a chapter which builds on the kind of amazing research and the history research that's been done on the commodification of blackness in popular culture and how one of the spheres of society where black people have actually been able to take hold is in entertainment and media and popular culture and historically there's some very very dark problematic roots to that which this book book explores but which are now being reproduced but also challenged by you know by uh black cultural producers in in, in all kinds of complex ways so that's a kind of looking at how blackness has become a commodity which is used to sell products um, but also, yeah, the radical forms of Black cultural expression which have been there throughout history and, and what forms they're taking in the present and what histories they build upon. So again, it's that stress on, you know, we haven't talked about it, but, you know, the big cook of this book is, you know, and I take this from David Hesman Howe, just those three words, complexity, contestedness and contradiction or ambivalence. You know, those are the three words that kind of really, which he was applying to, cultural production itself but i think really applies to race making practices and in fact other all kinds of you know forms of cultural expression and cultural production so so there's that and then also there was a chapter on um on, on digital race and racism and you know this was this was a really uh enjoyable chapter to write because it really allowed me to yeah, dip into or immerse myself rather in like what is probably the most exciting field of research in race and media studies more broadly. And that is to do with like digital race, racism in all its forms from like, you know, cyber racism to like social media and and, and platform capitalism, you know, and how, again, you know, big big hook of this is how race takes commodity forms in so many ways and how our ideas of race are embodied in a commodity form, which is, yeah, is it sounds so complicated, and it is really complicated, but really, really, I think really important to take seriously. You know how ideas of race take commodity form when it comes to media. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't write it in those terms in the book, but as I say out loud, that's kind of what this book is about. So you've got histories, like I say, the kind of recognizing that racism and capitalism are two distinct historical forces. That as I do say in the book, are shaping race making practices in really complex
1: contested and at times contradictory ways to uh, start from the end of those case studies the the chapter on the internet um, in particular there's a you do a really good job as you say it's it's super complicated but um you quite clearly relay out how like processes of racialization and actual racism are both features rather than bugs of the kind of like yeah. architecture, but also the economy and the participatory culture of the internet and web 2.0. Could you, could you expand on that a little bit?
0: Yeah. I mean, there I'm drawing from, you know, the work of some really brilliant digital race scholar. Oh no, you know, just digital scholars period. People like Ria Benjamin, Sophia Noble, um, kashana kashana gray i think is really brilliant um and yeah what they've shown us it's not that the internet is this kind of neutral just you know just kind of objective piece of technology that has as you put it has these bugs which end up being you know very very racist bugs (laughs) if i could put it in those kind of slightly good terms but um but the way in which kind of racism was a part of the development of those technologies. Um, and, you know, Charlton McKillawain wrote a brilliant book called Black Software, which is very, which is looking at the history of, you know, development of, you know, of, of tech and, and in the context of Silicon Valley and kind of actually, you know, much like contemporary cultural industries had uh, problems with, you know, institutional whiteness and, you and then the ways in which kind of black people were conceived in relation to the internet as well um as a kind of not as the normative user but rather a kind of problem that is to be fixed by you know let me put it in other terms in a black community kind of posing issues and problems that can be fixed by technologies right so you know and then I think it's Rua Benjamin. He talks about the tendency to talk about the internet as this black box for, you know, I think the pun's intended, but where, which kind of has racist inputs going into it, but produces very, not radically different, but intensified racial outputs. So it's trying to think about the people involved in the development of these techn- technologies and the cultural biases they bring, thinking about how those technologies themselves, become inscribed by with ideas of race like the very architecture of the internet being racializing if not racist and then thinking about the outputs that are produced in terms of the user experience in terms of who the you know who is the normative user and and how are other users treated um you know i work you know i think it's Work using the work of Jesse Daniels, another really brilliant and important digital scholar, you know, it's one of the most really um, uh, uh, provocative questions in that is, is the internet an inherently white space, which, you know, seems really reductive and and, and, and can't possibly be true in terms of the engagement, right, The, the internet facilitates from all kinds of people. But it's still a really important question to consider because in delving into it, it really does help understand the experience of these new digital technologies as felt by, you know, black, brown, Asian people, other racialized communities.
1: And and I suppose the internet also is one of the spaces where the ambivalence couldn't be more obviously to the fore in terms of its... um, (laughs) I guess in terms of the easily accessible and quite explicit anti-racist and social justice ness that pervades a space like Twitter, or uh, but sits so obviously alongside, you know, some of the absolutely. Most horrendous racist media available. Um, and you discuss black Twitter as a way into this in some ways. Um, and you use that as a way of arguing that online racemaking practices can actually contribute to the undoing of race itself. And that's also something that comes back in the conclusion. And obviously, that's kind of provocative um, as well. So I was wondering if, if you could talk to that a little bit. The point, you know, what is the point?
0: <laughs> like, it's the point, like, do we need to represent racial others better? You know, is that, is that our normative position? That doesn't sound, yeah. I mean, yeah, we want to stop the racist treatment of racialized people in media. That's, you know, I'm definitely on board with that. But when, we, when, it's, when it comes to the question of how can we represent our communities, black, brown, Asian people better, that's a much more tricky, contested question. And one that actually is quite dubious from the outset, because it's assuming there's a correct way of doing these things. Or a right way of doing these things. And that's that's not correct. So so what what do we where do we go from there then? You know, that's that that's the question. And you know, and I, I follow I follow the work of like utopian black thinkers like Paul Gilroy, who says, you know, we our task as anti racists is to do away with the idea of race itself. So this is the kind of the big the big kind of contribution of the critical cultural approach to race is that, yes, race is a social construct, but yes, race produces real material effects. But the idea of race itself is a product of racism. Racism is the very, it's not just, it's not just the feeling or belief that white people are superior to non-white people, but it's the idea that they are these things called races, that they are distinct and different. Um, not least different from the white European self, and so if that's what racism is. So it's not so we start off with racism, we put racism in the centre, and we see one of the outcomes of racism is this idea of race. So what can we do then? So for me, the only end point there is to just try and do away with race, the idea of race, or what Paul Gilroy calls raceology altogether. Easier said than done, right? Like <laughs> certainly not an overnight project. Certainly not going to be something that's done in my lifetime. But nonetheless, that has got to be a goal. So I'm really interested in those. If I, and then this is where I turn to representational politics. You know, as much as I've kind of stressed in this book, we can't just be fixated on representation. There's so much context that we need to explore in order to understand what race is doing conjuncturally, to use another famous cultural studies term. But I really, uh, I love my favourite, representations in scare quotes. So my favorite texts are ones which kind of play and toy and undermine and destabilize ideas of race. Um, and, you know, I, I know the third season of Atlanta is coming out, which is, you know, made by and stars Donald Glover, which is this kind of surreal take on kind of black urban life in Atlanta, in the, in in the, the U S which, yeah, kind of is kind of surreal and weird as well as real at times. And then, and, and, yeah, destabilizes our assumptions around what blackness means and what blackness is. Again, another really important learning we take, like the critical cultural approach to race shows us is that how our understanding of race, how ideas of race are built upon binary oppositions. So again, kind of forms of media um, And popular culture and news that can destabilize those binary oppositions, not least dismantle them, all of a sudden can can kind of have produced really radical rippling or at least rippling effects, and you know creating the conditions where more black, brown, Asian people can create these stories themselves for black, brown, Asian audiences who've been historically marginalized in a commercial media that doesn't see any economic value in them, let alone cultural value, if we can kind of improve the access for these groups to tell the stories that they want to tell in the ways that they want to tell them, you know, we can, again, to, I think, to finish off on Stuart Hall's terms again, you know, we can widen that regime of representation and not even widen it, but just pardon my French, but fuck it up you know and I'm, I'm sorry but i don't think there's a better way of expressing well you know of a, a really, the kind of radical cultural political approach i'm calling for it's like yeah messing around and destabilizing these these common sense categories of race that yeah still define our worlds our social worlds right now
1: yeah and i think i guess atlanta is one of those examples of the, the like making weird and the making strange of that sort of thing which i think is a is a really like promising a very prominent part of a lot of pop culture across different media as well. I think.
0: Yeah, and that's happening across the board, isn't it? Like, and, and the stuff that's happening around gender and sexuality, I think, is just the most exciting, radical, transgressive stuff that's um, that's happening in um, certainly certainly in, in media. You know, media, the platform where actually those the binaries between different genders are being exploded in like all kinds of radical ways and exciting ways slightly unnerving ways you know for like middle-aged cis brown man like myself but like god in it, this you know it's got it's radical that's you can't say anything else about you know if there's one thing you can say about the new forms of like gender and sexual politics that are unfolding is that it is radical um and yeah and that's so what can we how can we create a media that facilitates those kind of
1: expressions uh and we all benefit from that we all of us no absolutely so the final question i tend to ask people is what are you working on now
0: yeah well you know like um in the last few years we've seen these joe littler wrote a book called against meritocracy which i really really enjoyed oddie mold wrote a book called against creativity and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna work with this title because otherwise it's but, but i want to write something against diversity actually it's my working title uh which i'm yeah which which is basically kind of an argument and it's, so I'm going back to a kind of, I'm, and, you know, I'm thinking about, right, because I write, enjoyed writing in this accessible, which I what well, I think is an accessible mould, you tell me if it is, a accessible mould rather, um, I want to do something I've met, um, which is, yeah, maybe for like a general public which talks about diversity, what diversity is doing and why diversity isn't what it's cracked up to be and why actually diversity is precisely the problem in terms of racial inequalities in media right now. So that's what I'm working on. Um. Yeah. Without that giving. Tw- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to stress, I'm against diversity. You know, from an anti-racist perspective, rather than a kind of Lawrence Fox style. <laughs> it's too much old Piers Morgan style. There's too much diversity. Um, it's very much on the other end of the political spectrum to those to those deeds. But yeah.
1: Well, maybe you might accidentally sell some books to the far right as well, and yeah. I mean, to. God. <laughs> I mean, if
0: they're good for one thing, it's to extract <laughs> surplus value from, right? So. Exactly. <laughs>
1: Well, we've got that to look forward to then. That sounds great. Um, Thanks very much for coming on the show. Yes, Gamo. Thank you. Thanks a lot.